Welcome to the Faith Pampa Podcast, the podcast ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas. Each week, our pastors share a message from the scriptures to glorify God through the equipping, encouraging, and building up of the fellowship to grow in Christ and make disciples. This week, Pastor Dylan Hill will continue our introduction to the book of Joshua, discussing the nature of the conquest of the promised land by Israel. In this message, we will see that the holy and faithful God we serve does execute justice and discipline on those who do not repent, but gives grace to those who turn from sin. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we are going to continue on in our introduction to the book of Joshua today. However, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Deuteronomy referencing a commission that was given to Israel in that particular book that is relevant to our discussion in the book of Joshua. You'll remember last week we did our first general introduction to the book of Joshua to give you some context for the book. Because remember, context is so important for understanding the meaning of the text itself. Otherwise, we start importing our own context and perspectives into the text, and then we will inevitably get a bad meaning and interpretation from the text to then try to apply to our lives. So the aim is to get a proper context of a book anytime you are starting in on a new study in a book of the Bible. Today, though, we need to look at another aspect of that introduction, looking at a very particular aspect of the book of Joshua, and that is the conquest of Canaan and the actual taking of the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants and sort of the nature of what that takeover is and deal with some of the difficult issues that come along with that. But today we're going to look at the commission that was given in Deuteronomy to Israel and how they were supposed to approach taking over the land that they had been promised. Now, we're not going to dig too deeply into this passage in Deuteronomy. We're just going to hit the highlights and points that are made to provide us with an understanding of why it took place the way it did. So picking up here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 today. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites the Hevites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when Yahweh your God gives you over, or excuse me, when Yahweh your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Let's pray and seek the Lord's guidance as we enter into a time of study in his word. Lord, we do give you thanks for this, your word, that you've delivered faithfully by the hand of your prophet and preserved for us to this day that we might study the word of our God and know the God of the word. And so we pray, Lord, 
that during this time you would deal bountifully with your slaves, that we may live and keep your word and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your instruction. Guide us into the truth of your word. Help us to see clearly and to respond in faithful obedience, being conformed to the image of God in Christ to make your glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. I pray that in this time I would not speak from the empty arrogance of knowledge, but that you would speak to your people by your spirit through your word that they may be built up, equipped, and encouraged, and that your name ultimately would be glorified and exalted in the midst of your people. We pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our King. Amen. So my first Hebrew professor in seminary tells the story of visiting his brother. And he's at his house... And the kids in the other room, I'm assuming these are younger kids due to the nature of the story, that they're getting a little rowdy. Things are getting a little out of control. And so my professor's brother, uh, he he waits a little while, and he he gives him a chance to calm down. And then at some point, it was enough. And he said, kids, come here. And he waited. He gave an appropriate amount of time for a response for the kids to put down what they were doing and to come to their father to be corrected. But they never came. And he waited an adequate amount of time, I'm sure. And then all of a sudden, he starts counting. One, and then, without warning, these kids come blasting into the room. Now, my Hebrew teacher, he he looks at his brother and says, you know, that's usually not how that works. And and you all know how it goes. You, You start counting one, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. And, and the kids come at the last second, right? Well, he looks at his brother, and, he, and, the, and the brother who called the kids in says, oh, no, 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 I'm not counting giving them time to get in here. I'm starting to count how many spanks they're getting because they didn't come the first time I asked. And the reality is that we experience something very similar with our Heavenly Father. We experience this time to correct. We experience a call to correct. And then grace given and space given to correct. But ultimately, when we don't, when we don't actually correct course, what we quickly find is that discipline comes our way. Justice eventually comes. And we're going to see that that is the case for a very specific group in our uh, discussion today. We need to see that despite the fact that the Lord will give abundant grace to turn from sin, justice will come eventually. And we're going to see that in the case, particularly of the Canaanites that live in the land that had been promised to Abraham. The grace was given to turn, but they never did. And so judgment eventually came. And so the main idea we're going to see today is that the holy and faithful God we serve does execute justice and discipline on those who do not repent, but gives grace to those who turn from sin. And if this is the case, then we will see that we need to take sin seriously as an affront to the glory and holiness of God. And we need to know the cost of that sin, that it actually has a high price and a cost that we need to be aware of. Now again, last week, we did our general introduction to the book of Joshua. And uh, for those of you who have not yet seen it, or you may have passed it in the hallway and didn't realize it, this poster from the Bible Project is actually out in our hallway for you to view at any time. Uh, I'll be referencing it a lot as we go through to kind of keep your minds oriented to where we are in the book of Joshua. But last week we dealt with this introduction, which basically covers this first section here in the text. And if you're blind like I am, 
then you're going to need it uh, blown up just like I do uh, because I can't see that well. Um, but we covered this general introduction last week that Moses the prophet had led Israel out of Egypt from their slavery through the Exodus into the wilderness. And though they were going to go directly into the land because of their disobedience in the wilderness, they were actually disciplined. That first generation was not allowed to enter the promised land. Once that generation had died off after 40 years, the next generation was then allowed to enter the land. And this is where Joshua takes over. Even Moses himself sins. He was only supposed to call out to this rock to give the people water uh, later in their time of wanderings. And instead, Moses, in his frustration, struck the rock twice. And because he disobeyed the voice of God, he was not allowed to enter the land either. And so Moses is going to die in the wilderness, not having crossed Jordan into the land promised to Abraham. And Joshua was commissioned to take his place as the leader of Israel. And so we looked at that last week. And so we're at about the year 1406 B.C. at this point in Israel's history. Uh, Again, the Exodus having happened 40 years earlier in 1446 B.C. So just as a reminder for who wrote the book, uh, the, the reality is that at the end of the book, Joshua's death narrative is included. So we know Joshua didn't write it because clearly he was dead. Um, so somebody either added that on after Joshua had written the bulk of the book or that the book itself was written by somebody else overall. Um, it is very likely the book was written within the first 50 years or so after the events took place because of multiple different references that are made throughout the book that seem to indicate that the book is a fairly new to the events that actually took place that it recorded. And so it's possible that someone like Caleb, uh, who was one of the other spies that went into the land earlier, who's still alive after Joshua dies, or Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, who had just taken over his role as high priest, um, wrote the book at that time. So, Or any kind of combination of the three or some other prophet. We just don't know who actually wrote the book. But from internal evidence within the text, it's, it's probably pretty certain that the text was written pretty soon after the events that it actually describes. And again, the purpose was to declare to Israel that Yahweh is holy and faithful and expects faithful obedience from His covenant people. And we're going to see this play out over and over and over again in the book, that despite the fact that God is holy and He will execute His justice and discipline on His people, He continues to show them grace after grace after grace in the process. So again, we looked at that general introduction last week. This week we're going to look at this special issue. And again, I'm going to zoom in here because I am blind and can't see. Um, But we're going to talk about God's justice on human evil. Why it is that the Canaanites suffered in the way they did when Israel came in and became instruments of judgment on the inhabitants of the land. And so we're going to look at this specifically today because this is a topic that can get very twisted in the eyes of the world when they don't understand what's going on in the context of the biblical narrative. So the first thing we're going to talk about is what it means for us to take sin seriously. So let's talk about the background justification for the judgment. If we were to go to Genesis chapter 15, what you're going to find there is the narrative of the covenant being cut with Abraham. Remember, Abraham uh, was born in the city of Ur in southern Mesopotamia, which is like southern Iraq into the Persian Gulf, uh, down the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. At some point, his father moved the family very far north into northern Mesopotamia, northern Iraq area, Um, in a place called Haran. And they remained there until he died, and then they moved uh, the family into Canaan. Abraham was called out 
of Haran to go to Canaan because the Lord had promised that land to him. And so Abraham's in the land very briefly. This is about the year 1876 B.C., I think, um, if I remember correctly. And Abraham receives this covenant. And in the midst of receiving this covenant, the Lord speaks to Abraham and says this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And so this is the promise that his descendants would eventually, having sojourned in the land of Canaan, then gone into Egypt, as we saw last week, entered into a time of slavery, and then being brought out. That takes place over the course of four centuries. It actually ends up being a little longer. This is more of a summary statement here. But then the Lord actually gives part of the reasoning why such a long period needs to happen. He says in verse 16, And they shall come back here, his people would come back, in the fourth generation. And the reason why is for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, who are the Amorites? The Amorites were sort of the uh, main group of the Canaanites. They were sort of a representative tribe of the Canaanite peoples. And the Lord is essentially saying this. They have not yet come to a point where he sought to execute justice on them because of their wickedness and sin. He was going to give space, four centuries worth of space, for them to turn from their ways. Now, understand that the Lord often provides people to speak that truth of who He is into the life of a community so that they will turn. And so you may be asking, well, who's there to speak the truth into their existence? Well, first of all, Abraham is there amongst them, so he's able to represent the Lord amongst them, as to Isaac and Jacob for a time. But not only that, there are other people in the nations that live in the Canaan region uh, that are able to speak to the truth of this one true God, one of them of whom we see in Genesis chapter 14, the man Melchizedek, the king of righteousness who comes out to bless Abraham. We see men who are favorable toward Abraham and his faith, men like Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre, who actually help him to retrieve Lot in the middle of a massive uh, invasion that happens in Canaan during the days of Abraham. So there are people who are able to represent the truth of God in such a way that the Amorites, the Canaanites, can turn from their sinfulness and wickedness to the Lord. So the Lord is actually providing an enormous amount of space for these peoples to repent and turn from their ways. And we're going to see why that's important here in just a moment. But then we start to see the actual sins. We start to see the warnings that are given in the first five books of the Bible, what we call Torah, or the law. So we start out in Exodus 34, verses 11 through 16. We get sort of this first warning. Now, bear in mind, I'm going to give you a lot of verses today. We're not going to read every single passage because that would just take way too much time. They are referenced in your notes, so you're welcome to go back and look at these. But essentially what we're going to do is we're going to walk through here all the sins that are referenced of what's going on in Canaan that has justified the judgment that is coming upon them. And so in Exodus 34, 11 through 16, we get sort of this first warning of the idolatry of the people, that they need to be careful that there's going to be idolatry amongst the people there, and they need to be aware of that. There's mention there of the ashram poles or pillars. Now, an ashram is essentially a pillar that has been raised to represent worship of Asherah. Now, understand the Canaanites 
had a religion that they used a lot of words that were similar to the words that the Israelites used. And one of the gods they actually served was called El. It's one of their main deities that they served. Well, El just means God in both Canaanite religions, or excuse me, Canaanite language and in, in Hebrew. It just means God. And so in a sense, Asherah was this bride or consort of the god El. And so essentially what the Canaanites have done is they've created a partner with the one God, and that is idolatry and sin. And so they're warned about this in Exodus 34. But then he goes on into just this litany of other horrible sins. In Leviticus chapter 18, you get a listing off of all these sexually immoral acts that are to be avoided by the people of Israel, but what's referenced there is that this is exactly the sorts of things that the people in Canaan are doing, and they're, they're horrifically awful sexually immoral acts that are listed there. Numbers chapter 25 and 31 mention an incident where the Midianites actually lead the Israelites astray into idolatry, and then they are punished, and they see the actual effects of being taken into idolatry and the dangers of it and the justice of God that comes in the aftermath of that. In Numbers chapter 33, they're told again to strike down the idols, but they're also told to strike down the high places. Now, bear in mind, in these cultures, in this time, the way you get close to the gods is you actually get vertically higher. You get higher altitude. And so they would go to places that were geographically a higher altitude and build places of worship there, and these were the high places. And they needed to be struck down too because they were worshiping false gods there. But then we come to this horrible thing in Deuteronomy chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 18. This is where we start hearing about child sacrifice. Children offered, on, particularly on the altar of a god called Molech. Um, this is an absolutely horrific practice um, that I will spare you the description of because it is truly, truly awful. But they're offering child sacrifice to their god to curry favor to get blessings from their deities. And this is one of the main things that they do that, that garners the actual judgment of God. Now they also, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it's mentioned that they're practicing divination and consulting the dead for predictions of the future or to understand the will of their gods. Um, this is another practice which is evil that's being done in the land. So all these are the different sorts of sins that the Canaanites are committing that are just absolutely, truly awful and sinful. And when we go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, we hear Paul talking about the fact that between the time that the covenant was given to the Exodus was 430 years. So they had 430 years to correct course. Then they were given an additional 40 years as Israel wandered in the wilderness to again correct their behavior. And understand why that 40 years is important. They got word that Israel had left Egypt, that God had struck the Egyptians. Word made it to Canaan that this had happened and that God was with Israel, and yet even though they heard this message, they still didn't turn from their ways. Now here's the problem. If we were to go to Genesis chapter 9, we hear in the language of the law given to all mankind after the flood, a law given to Noah, that whoever sheds blood in the land will have his blood shed, that he will be executed. And this is important because they have committed violence in the land, particularly surrounding child sacrifice, but they've done numerous other horrible things. 
But then we come to Numbers chapter 35, 33 through 34. And this is a very important aspect of understanding the bloodshed issue. You need to understand that in God's economy, in Numbers chapter 35, he says that the shedding of blood pollutes the land. It makes it unclean and pollutes it. And the only way to cleanse the land is to shed the blood of the one who committed the act in the first place. In other words, to execute the murderer. This is the only way to cleanse the land. And so part of Israel coming in to judge the Canaanites was to cleanse the land of the wickedness that had taken place there. But understand, once again, I want to emphasize this, that the Lord has given so much space to the Canaanites over the years to turn, and they haven't. And the reason why this is important is because when we get to the prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years later, the Lord speaking through the prophet says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That's Jeremiah chapter 18 verse 7 and 8. And we see this with Nineveh, don't we? We see this with Jonah goes to proclaim the destruction of the city. Nineveh repents and the Lord relents from what he was going to do to the city. We see this time and time again. So we know that in God's economy, the way he works, his character is to turn from judgment when people repent. But the reality is they didn't. And they were soon under God's judgment because of this. He eventually came to a point where judgment had to be executed. And that's where we are now. They didn't take their sin seriously. In light of what God was doing, they didn't take their sin seriously. And so eventually he brought justice upon them. So again, the first response we need to have to the reality that God does execute justice and discipline on those who do not repent, but gives grace to those who do turn from sin is that we need to take sin seriously in the light of who God is. There's a quote I saw recently by Charles Spurgeon, where he said, If I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of my sin. I merely regret that God is just. See, the problem is so often when we get in trouble because of our sin, the reason we're upset is because we got caught because we got punished, because we got disciplined for what we did wrong. That's why we're upset. We're not upset because what we did was wrong. And in the context of our relationship with the Lord, there's an even further accusation here. The issue is, I'm upset that I got punished, and thereby I am set upset that God is just, that God is holy. And so instead of being upset that I have committed an act as an affront to the holiness and glory of God, I'm upset because He's just. Well, that perspective is going to put you in a position to not take your sins seriously. And, unfortunately, per Spurgeon's quote, to learn to despise the very character of God. And so we need to understand that we have to take our sins seriously. And we should understand and hate our sin because it is contrary to God. It is contrary to who He is. Why is this important? Because when we sin, we fail to represent Christ as we should. 
Remember, we have been called to be the image of God in Christ. Being the image of God in Christ means that we are His representatives, and in order to represent Him, we have to look like Him. And when we sin, we don't look like Him. When we commit the acts that show the world that we're not like Him, we're not representing Him. When we lie, when we deceive, when we cheat people, when we mistreat people, all these things are contrary to who He is and therefore not representative of Him. And so we fail to represent Him because of this. It is also an affront to His holiness at baseline. We're committing an act against a holy God. We're, we're committing an act of infinite transgression because He is infinitely holy. And so we need to take it seriously for that reason, of just the, the impurity in contrast to how holy He is. That's how serious our sin is. And so we need to understand that it demands justice. Now understand, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on as well, that the reality is, for those who are not in Christ, those who have not put their faith in the person and work of Jesus, justice will come eventually. Sin will be judged. They cannot get away with what they're doing forever. Justice will come, and the wrath of God will rest on them in one way or another, either in this world or the next. For those of us who are in Christ, we can get under the mistaken impression, however, that because justice has been done on our behalf at the cross in Christ, that we are now able to sin without consequence. We can do what we want because, well, Jesus will forgive me. But the problem is we forget that there is this thing called discipline. And discipline will come upon the people of God when they fail to live as representatives of the Lord and continue to do so with impunity. They continue to do so thinking that there aren't going to be consequences. Well, there will be. Discipline comes. And I'm sure those of you who walked with the Lord long enough have even experienced discipline at times because it is a purifying effect. I've been disciplined at times. I understand it. It's not pleasant. But here's the amazing glimmer of light that comes in the midst of discipline. The purpose of discipline is to make you look like Jesus. And because you are disciplined, what the Scriptures tell us is that you are loved by the Father, that you are actually in Christ because He is trying to make you look more and more like Him. This is why we need to take our sin very seriously for all these reasons. It is contrary to God. It is an affront to His holiness. And we're not representing Him when we sin. And we need to understand that we cannot keep doing our sin with impunity thinking that we're going to constantly get away with it because we will be disciplined. All right, so we first of all need to take sin seriously. Any questions or comments at this point? So again, because the holy and faithful God we serve does execute justice and discipline on those who do not repent but gives grace to those who turn from sin... We need to take our sins seriously. And secondly, we need to know the cost of sin. Now, I do want to make a particular comment, look at a particular verse from uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. 
Because what we're going to look at now is what Israel was actually commissioned to go and do. They were commissioned to enter into the land, take it over, but in the process, they were going to be executing a lot of Canaanites. They were going to be instruments of God's justice on the nations that lived in the promised land. But we need to understand something about the character of God before we go there. And so we go to Ezekiel chapter 18. This is, this is an extremely important comment that the prophet records here that tells us something about the heart of the Lord. In chapter 18, verse 23, the Lord speaking through the prophet says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? This is the character of God. He will execute justice, but he takes no pleasure in it. He doesn't look at the wicked executing his justice and say, Hi, you got what you deserved. That's not how he operates. That's not who he is. It doesn't mean that he won't execute justice, but what it does mean is that when he has to, when he does, it is not something that he takes pleasure in. Rather, he wants him to turn and live for righteousness. And so we need to understand that about his character if we're going to put this judgment commission in its context per the character of God. And so as we go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to look at several passages here in Exodus and Deuteronomy to look at the commission that Israel was given as they go into the land. So this was the passage we read at the beginning of our time today, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 7. And I am going to fly pretty high here, uh, just giving you the highlights of what is actually said in this paragraph to give you the different points of commission that Israel were given. So first of all, certain statements are made. First of all, Yahweh would dispossess the Canaanites. In other words, he would take the land from them. So understand that the operator behind all that's going to happen is God. He is the one making it happen. In fact, the next thing it says is that Yahweh would give them over to Israel. He would actually hand Israel's enemies over into their possession to execute justice. And so again, he is the one who is doing the work. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it says, Israel would defeat them. And that when they did, he says specifically that he would devote them to destruction. Now we're going to look at the terms used for this in a little bit, but just ahead of time. This means to destroy them. They are going to kill a lot of people. They are going to be executing a lot of people in the process of taking over the land. And again, this is an act of God's justice and judgment on the people. Israel was to make no covenants with this people. They were to have no mercy. They were not to intermarry. And again, they were to destroy their idols and all their idolatry-related things, including them, their pillars, their ashram poles, all these things were supposed to be destroyed so that the people would not be led astray. And so this is a commission that's given in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And then repeatedly, later on in chapter 7, and later on in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see the Lord commissioning Israel to devote them to destruction. Again, this means to execute them. To execute God's justice on the people. This is not something to be taken lightly, nor again does God take pleasure in it. But it is His justice being operated through by Israel. 
Now, I do want to point out, there are side effects that you're going to read elsewhere. So, in Exodus chapter 23, we see many, many different side effects here. First of all, Yahweh would blot them out. So again, God is the operator. He is the one who's actually doing the action of destroying these peoples to drive them out. But Israel becomes an instrument there as well that Israel would destroy them. It says that Yahweh would drive them out. We see this a little bit later, that Israel would drive them out as well. The idea here is that as Israel is coming into the land and, and destroying cities, there, there are people that are going to die in those attacks. But then there are going to be people who live geographically further from those incidents who are going to hear about these destructive activities, and they're going to flee the land. And so one of the side effects of Israel going in and devoting them to destruction is that people are going to flee out of the land to escape the invasion, to escape this settlement of the land of Israel. And so part of that effect is they would leave. Israel was not supposed to pursue them outside the land to destroy them. These people would flee. So this is a side effect. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and in fact in Joshua chapter 3, we'll see later on, it is the Lord who would dispossess the land to take it away from Canaan. Now, I do want to go back to this word that is used for devote to destruction. It is a very difficult word in Hebrew. It is haram. Haram in Hebrew means to uh, devote something to the Lord, either for his use in worship or as a sacrifice. Uh, one commentator put it this way, and I thought this was one of the best definitions I've seen. It is a little technical, but I thought it was a really good tech, uh, uh, definition. He said something that is haram is something that being separated from common use or contact. This is not something to be used in common everyday usage. It is special in some way. But notice it can be special in one of two ways, either positively or negatively. It is separated from common use or contact either because it is prescribed as an abomination to God. In other words, it is to be set aside and destroyed because it is an abomination to God. It shouldn't be used as common because it is an abomination to the Lord or because it is consecrated to Him. We're actually going to see this with the invasions early on um, that... They're going to attack, and then some of the things that they're allowed to keep go into the service of the Lord. So when they attack Jericho, there are instruments of gold, silver, and other metal bit, bits and pieces that are actually taken for the service of the tabernacle, whereas the people are killed. And so there are some things that are given over to the Lord because they are His, other things that are executed. So in the case of the Canaanite peoples, they're being dedicated as a sacrifice to cleanse the land, per Numbers thirty that I read earlier, and to execute God's justice. And so we're going to see this over and over and over again. And I know, I know I've seen uh, said invasion several times. It's not, not probably the proper word to use. This is a settlement, but they are having to come in with military force to take over the land. But the idea is that the peoples are being executed because they are being set aside as an abomination to the Lord because of their sin. And this is an execution of justice and a cleansing of the land. And when we see this play out in the book of Joshua, we're, we're going to see variations in the application of this. Sometimes because it's what the Lord wants, sometimes it's because the people disobey. In some cases, everything goes. Everything's destroyed. In other cases, just the people, and then they're allowed to keep the plunder. In other cases, it varies wildly. We're going to see lots of different circumstances with lots of different contexts for why it was handled the way it was handled. Either way, we're going to see the nation of Israel struggling to be Yahweh's instrument of justice and cleansing in the land. 
And at times they're going to succeed, and at other times they're going to fail. And what we're going to see over and over again is that, yes, God will execute his justice and discipline on Israel as well, as they fail to obey in the way they're supposed to do it. And we're also going to see him extending grace and his faithfulness to them to still bring them into the land that was promised to them. Again, remember the cost from Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds blood will have his blood shed. Numbers 35, the land is polluted by the shedding of blood, and the only way to cleanse it is by the shedding of the blood of the one who did it in the first place. So remember, this is the cost. This is the cost that is coming. This is why Israel is being used as an instrument of God's justice. It is a very serious thing that the Canaanites have gotten themselves into, and now it has come time for justice to be executed. But again, remember, the Lord does not take pleasure in this, but He will do it. And so the other thing we need to take into account on top of taking our sins seriously is knowing the cost of sin. Some of you may be aware, and some of you probably painfully aware, uh, that I am a huge Backgammon fan. It is by far my favorite board game. Um, it is something I've been playing for a really long time now. Uh, and, and I've gotten to a point where I'm, I'm starting to, to bridge over into getting into more uh, skillful play, more advanced play, and how that works. And so I thought, you know what, it's time for me to look at getting a professional tournament-sized board. They're not monstrous, but they are bigger than your average board. Um, you know, they fold in half into you know pretty big briefcase size. Um, so I'm looking around, and eventually I fall on this particular board. This is a beautiful backgammon board. Uh, the, the color inlays can be removed and replaced with other colors, so you can change it up and customize it how you want. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to search around for boards, and, you know, you would think maybe something like this, a couple hundred dollars, because, you know, there's some craftsmanship that goes into this. Uh, no, this is a $1,200 backgammon board. And that's where, when you're surfing online, you choke on your coffee, right? Um, and what's funny is this isn't even one of the more expensive backgammon boards. These can run as high as $2,500. It's, it's kind of shocking. So as I'm casually looking across the Internet, you don't expect to find a board game, particularly something like this, that costs so much. But then when you look more intently at it, you realize there's a much higher cost to be paid here for something like this. The reality is the same with our sin. When we casually look at our sin we completely miss the cost. We completely miss how high the cost actually is. And the reality is it costs an immense price. If we were to go to Isaiah chapter 53, again, I don't have time to read the whole passage, but we're going to see there the torments that the Lord went through in His death the horrible things that were done to him, the way he was treated. You go to the Gospels, you'll see the same narrative play out. His mistreatment, the beatings, his crucifixion and his death. All so that he could die in the place of sinners. It is interesting, Paul Washer points out this bizarre contrast between Jesus and people who die for Jesus, martyrs. And he points out that martyrs so often face their deaths with heads held high, with a boldness, because they know they're going to Christ's kingdom. To live is Christ, to die is gain, right? So why is it Jesus is so tormented in the garden 
over what's about to happen. What is in the cup that he is praying to pass? It is not merely a martyr's death. It is the very wrath of God. Something that those who are in Christ will never suffer. The price that got laid upon Jesus was the wrath of God in the place of sinners. That is the cost for our Lord to receive the wrath and justice we deserved. It cost Him everything. Torment on a level we could not possibly begin to understand. But here's what's amazing. The Lord executed His justice through Christ. Because otherwise, He would have to execute His justice and wrath upon all sinners, right? He executed His wrath and justice upon Christ so that those who are in Him would never have to suffer the justice of God in His wrath. That was the price that got paid. And so, by grace, through faith in what Christ has done on the cross, we are able to be removed from the path of God's wrath in His justice. We have been given grace to be able to be removed from the tidal wave of His wrath that will come upon the sinner who has not repented and turned to Him in faith. And so we call upon those of you who have not turned to the Lord Jesus in faith to put your faith in Christ It cost Him everything to keep you from having to suffer the wrath of God. For those who do not turn and repent and put their faith in Christ, all they have to look forward to is the wrath of God in His justice. Again, not in pleasure, but certainly in His justice. Now, for those of you who have already put your faith in Christ, understand that Yes, we will not have to suffer the wrath of God in His justice. But that does not mean we escape discipline. And if we, if you, choose to continue to live in sin and do not repent and turn from it, seeking His grace to live in holiness, you will be disciplined because He loves you. And so I call upon you, brothers and sisters, to turn from your sin so that you will look like Him, so that you can take your sin seriously, knowing that the cost was Christ Himself, so that you could look like Him, so that you could live in holiness, represent Him well. And so for those of us who are in Christ, take your sin seriously and know the cost. And know that there will come a point at which your sin will be dealt with, even though you are in Christ still. But again, for those of you who have not turned to Christ, today is the day of salvation. Put your faith in Christ. Because our Lord does take sin seriously. And He will execute justice and righteousness in His holiness. But He gives grace to those who turn in faith 
to him. So again, take your sin seriously and know the cost. Any questions or comments at this point? All right, so as we close, again, our main idea is this, that the holy and faithful God we serve does execute justice and discipline on those who do not repent, but gives grace to those who turn from sin. And if this is the case, we need to take our sins seriously, both as those who might not be in Christ and those who are in Christ. Because for those who are not in Christ, wrath will come. For those who are in Christ, discipline will come. And so as we go to the table today, we come to acknowledge the price, the cost of sin in Christ And so as we come to the table, we need to take time to confess the reality that at times we have not taken our sins seriously. We have not seen how it is an affront to the holiness and glory of God. We have not seen how it misrepresents Him though we claim to be in Christ. And we haven't taken seriously the fact that discipline will come. We need to confess this to the Lord at this time to properly evaluate our perspective on this, properly evaluate how we failed in this way. And we need to take time to really meditate on the cost that this table represents. The body given, the cup of the new covenant cut in His blood so that we could live in Him and not suffer the wrath of God. And so we need to take time of confession to repent of this and seek His forgiveness to seek His grace, to take our sins seriously, to try to walk in holiness, but also to throw ourselves upon His grace for His strength, for His power, to walk in that holiness, taking our sins seriously, knowing the cost in Christ, and representing Him well. And so we come to this table today to celebrate the Lord Jesus, to give praise and glory to Him for what He has accomplished to bring us in a reconciled relationship to our God so we might live in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we do give You thanks. We give You thanks that You have made a way through the Lord Jesus to live in You, to find life eternal in Your kingdom and not suffer Your justice through Your wrath that you have seen fit to pour out your wrath on the Lord Jesus and not upon us. Lord, we give you thanks and praise. We do confess to you at times we have not taken our sins seriously. We have casually looked at it and not realized the, the seriousness of what we've done, that it has been an affront to you, that it has been a failure to represent you, that it is a denial of your justice. We confess this, and by your grace, we repent and seek your forgiveness. But again, Lord, we come to this table to celebrate what you have accomplished through the Lord Jesus. To live in you. Lord, we do give you thanks for the times you have disciplined because you, we know that it means you love us and you want us to look more like Jesus. 
So help us to endure those times of discipline and faith, knowing that you love us, Lord. We give thanks to you as we come to this table today to praise the Lord Jesus. We pray this all in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus, our King. Thank you for listening to the Faith Pampa podcast. We hope that this message was an encouragement to you. For more information on Faith Bible Church, please visit www.faithpampa.org.